Well, if you're the kind of person who typically takes sermon notes, I want to just encourage you this morning to just maybe put down your pen and paper and, and just listen. I'm doing a, a little differently than I normally would do. I don't have a, a three-point sermon outline or anything like that today. In line with what Paul is doing here in the text, my sermon is, is designed to just kind of follow suit. It's, it's really to just uh, to be more of a charge. And it's, it's my attempt to try to get into the mind of Paul, the imagery that must have been swirling around in his head as he wrote these final words to Timothy. And I say final words because that's what this is. We've talked about that a little bit if you've been with us uh, for the last several weeks that we've been in 2 Timothy. But 2 Timothy is a record of the last known words of the Apostle Paul. So as we now round into chapter 4, uh, which is not a chapter division that he made, but that we've made, we can certainly say this, these are the last known words of the Apostle Paul. This is the last letter that he penned, and these are the last words that he likely spoke to anyone in the church because his appointment with death, he, he was about to be executed by order of the Emperor Nero, that appointment was quite possibly just days away. And Paul seemed to know that. He seemed to know that he was about to be martyred for the faith very soon. And you could hear it in his words here. These sound like the last words of a man who knows that he's about to die. And this is what he wants Timothy to know. This is what he wants the church to finally know. And I know Deanna just read it, but I'm going to read it again. Look back down at chapter 4. And we're going to just focus on the, the, the verses that I'm covering today. The middle section will be handled next week as Joey comes up and, and leads us through it. But, but listen to what he says. Again, these are the last words to the church. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing and His kingdom preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Look down at verse 6. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I had the very special privilege of being in Rome two weeks ago. And of all the things that I wanted to see in Rome, and there was a lot of things that I wanted to see in Rome, the Mamertine prison was at the top of my list. And it was at the top of my list because it is this prison is believed to have been the place where both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were held as they were bound in Roman chains. Which means this. This prison, the Mamertine prison, is, is most likely the exact place that Paul was when he wrote this letter. Which is especially meaningful to me as, as a pastor and a preacher who's preaching through this letter right now. I was very excited to go and to see the place that he probably was. And so, 12 days ago, 
Christine and I made our way into that prison cell. And I got in there, and I sat down, and I began to read aloud the verses that I just read to you. And it was really hard for me to do. I don't know why. I wasn't sure what I was expecting. I had anticipated. I wanted to go in there and I wanted to read it. And I wanted to read it aloud in case there were other people there. Just, just to remind everybody, like, this is where we are. But there wasn't really anybody else in there. It was just Christine and I. And I had to pause after just about every other word as I began to read those verses because I was trying to choke back tears for some reason. It was really powerful for me to do that. And it, I would say it was life-changing for me as a preacher. As a preacher, I gained a, a whole new appreciation for what Paul must have been or certainly might have been thinking as he wrote these words. When you're there in that place and you're, you're sort of surrounded by what he was surrounded by, you, just, you gain a new perspective. And I want to show you, this is what the prison looks like on the inside. Now in the, in the Middle Ages, a chapel was built on top of this prison. So it's been converted sort of into a, a church. Uh, and what you see there in the picture is sort of the back wall of the first floor, the, the main prison cell. And you see that there's now an altar that has been erected. And that altar is there to commemorate the fact that both the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul are thought to have been held in this place. Those are plaster busts of Peter and Paul there behind that grate. Now what you can't see in this picture is that there's a hole in the floor. And that hole is about the size of a manhole, again covered by another grate. Those are the feet of the lovely Christine on the top end of the hole, by the way. That's me down below. Right? Right, right there, just kind of in front of that, that, where that altar is now, there's this little manhole there. And what we were told is that while many of the prisoners would have been held in this room that we're standing in right now, this first level prison cell, others, those who were considered to perhaps be the most dangerous, were lowered through this hole and into a smaller, darker chamber below. And that's where the Apostle Paul is said to have been held. And this is what it looks like if you go down there. It's a small room. I tried to stand up in it. It's not quite tall enough for my six foot three inch frame to stand upright in. And you can see now that the room is lit by artificial electric light now. So you can see it. But I can tell you there's no windows down there. And so in its day, this would have been a very dark, a very foreboding place, only receiving its air and a little bit of light, its limited light, from that hole in the ceiling above. And in the photo, you can see the bolt holes that are still here on the wall where the chains would have been affixed to the wall of the cell. And that's probably where Paul was chained. So I want you to imagine him there, just sitting right there in that spot. That's maybe where he wrote this letter. And I think back to chapter 2, 
as I look at that photo, and I recall him saying this, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my Gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. Now what caught my attention, maybe more than anything in being here, was the location of the prison itself. The prison is located at one end of what's called the the Roman Forum. And the Roman Forum was the epicenter of political and religious and commercial and judicial power in ancient Rome. It's the center of the ancient city. It's, it's the place where all of the majestic you know, temples and statues and columns and pillars and all those things, it's, it's sort of like ground zero for all of that stuff in Rome. Some people have called the Roman Forum the most celebrated meeting place in all of world history. And i got to tell you, when you're there, you can get a sense that that, that feels right. If you were to walk the courtyard of the Forum in ancient Rome during Paul's day, you would stand where Caesar and other leaders gave public speeches. You'd walk where soldiers marched in triumphal procession after their victories on the battlefield as they came home to all the pomp and circumstance. You'd see the birthplace of the Roman Senate and you'd be surrounded by statues of celebrated heroes from Roman history. You'd also see that there are these big ornate temples. You would be standing in the shadow of these temples to Vesta and to Caesar. And so to help you kind of understand that with with modern eyes and a modern perspective, to get a sense of the significance of this location, consider this. It's like Paul was was being held in a prison cell like a half block down from the the, the U.S. Capitol and the Supreme Court building in Washington, D.C. At one end of the Capitol Mall. You get the sense it's sort of like that kind of setting. So if you go back from this lower cell up the hole again back into the main prison cell and you're facing that altar on the back wall, if you were to turn around, you'd see a doorway that leads out onto the street level. Now do you see the daylight coming through those doors? Through the windows on those doors? You can't see it in the picture because it's just being flooded with light. But when you're there, all you have to do is look out and you basically see right where the courtroom would have been situated. You'd be looking right at the place where as a criminal, your ultimate fate would be decided. It's staring you right in the face. And so I'm entering into Paul's thinking at this point. And I read this. Again, verse 1 and 2. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. He says this, who is to judge the living and the dead? And by His appearing, preach the Word. And in verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. And it, it dawns on you when you're standing there and you're thinking about this language and you're, you're seeing this place where the courtroom would be standing, that the idea of judgment becomes very real for Paul here. He's contrasting what he sees with what he knows. He's saying there's an unrighteous judge, the one that's right outside this door. The one that I'm looking at right here, it's staring me in the face, and there's a righteous judge. The Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he asks himself this question, and he wants us to ask this question too, which one will I entrust my life to? The unrighteous judge for Paul was immediately represented by Nero. Again, Nero is the emperor in Rome at this time. Nero is the man who is about to condemn him to death. But I think for Paul, in his worldview, the unrighteous judge is far bigger than Nero. It's far bigger than just a man. It's the whole system of the world. The whole system of the world standing opposed to the kingdom of heaven. And there couldn't be a more intense symbol of this unrighteous world system than the Roman Forum itself. Paul's prison cell again sat in the shadow of these ornate temples to Vesta and Caesar. And if you, if you, if you looked at them, if you look at photos of them, what they would have looked like in the past and, and read a little bit about what they were erected for and what their history is, you'd, you'd get this. Caesar's temple was erected just after Julius Caesar's death, which would have been a few decades before Paul wrote this. And the temple was erected there because it was there, it was the Romans' way of signifying the deification of Caesar. In other words, they're saying Caesar is God. And the temple to Vesta represents power and security. There was an, an eternal flame that burned in that temple. And it was, it was thought that as long as that flame was burning, Rome was secure. Rome was protected. Rome's fortunes were going to go well. And so it's seen as the key to the fortunes of the empire. In, a sense, in essence, it's saying this, this, this is the power that sustains your life. Caesar's God and this system is the power that sustains your life. That was the dominant view. That was what was celebrated in Rome. That's what Paul's looking at as he looks out the window. And to defy or deny these powers was to commit the ultimate treason. And that's why Paul would stand trial. The unrighteous judge says, follow the system of the world. Follow the system of the world. There is no higher power. Put your trust in this. Put your trust in our philosophy. Put your trust in our customs. Put your trust in our ritual practices. Put your trust in all that is visible to you in this surrounding culture. Submit yourselves to our view of, of, of morality. Submit yourselves to our understanding of economics. Submit yourselves to our sexual ethics. Submit yourselves to our social structures. This is your stability. This is the way to peace. And it's an antichrist system. Because it says, don't look to Him, look right here. Therefore, the unrighteous judge always stands to condemn and to convict every follower of Jesus. Which is why in the previous chapter, in chapter 3, verses 12, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now again, I'm, I'm sitting in this cell, I'm looking at the window, I'm reading these words, 
I'm imagining what it would be like for him to, to be looking at the pictures of unrighteousness, the unrighteous judge, and thinking about what he's now saying to Timothy. And it's an amazing picture. Because here's Paul, bound by the chains of the unrighteous judge, standing and saying boldly to Timothy in verse 1, no. No, it is Jesus Christ who will finally judge the living and the dead. Nero is not my judge. Not my ultimate judge. Jesus is my ultimate judge. His is the kingdom and the system to which I ultimately belong. And my fate is in His righteous hands. Imagine the, 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 the mindset of a man who knows that his very real, immediate fate is in the hands of the man across the street. And then he's saying, no, my fate ultimately is in the righteous hands of the righteous judge, Jesus. And so, Timothy, as I know that, do as I've always done. Continue to do what I have continued to do until my last breath is drawn. Preach the Word. Preach the Word that's been entrusted to you to guard as a good deposit the Word of Jesus Christ. What is the Word of God? It is again the announcement that He's the King. It's the announcement that He sits on the throne of heaven, that He sets up and He brings down earthly kingdoms as He wills according to His purposes, according to His design, according to His timing. And it is Jesus, nobody else, who will have the last word. He's the Creator. He's the sustainer of the world. And it is His way of life that is the way of life. It is Jesus who is the true path to peace. He's the righteous judge. He's the righteous Son of God who came and died for our sins. Who rose again to conquer sin and death and to ransom our lives for the Father, that in Him we might gain every spiritual and heavenly blessing available to Him because we in Him are sons and daughters of the King. His is the name above all names. His is the name to which every knee will bow. He is coming again. And when He comes, he will be my judge. He'll be my judge. And because of His great mercy and grace displayed at the cross, His judgment towards me, unlike Nero's, will be favorable. I will receive from Him the crown of righteousness. And so too will all of you who loved His appearing. And I think he's, he's, he's saying to Timothy as he's been writing all along here, Timothy, you know this. You know this from infancy. 
You've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus. Remember, he says that in chapter 3, verse 15. And so, Timothy, you know what the psalmist says in Psalm 50, 1 through 6, that God himself is the judge, the mighty one. God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire and around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people saying, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is Judge Selah. Preach the Word. Those are powerful last words. And we need to hear them. And I think what Paul is saying to Timothy and also to us as he's reminded Timothy earlier in the letter, teach these things to faithful others, right? Who will be able to teach others also. We need to carry the torch. Paul knows that this is the end of the line for him. Yet he knows that the message of the Gospel, the preaching of Christ, is what Timothy and the next generation and generations of believers need to keep on preaching because this is what the world needs to hear. The good news. The truth that the righteous judge will have the final word. Now having stood in that prison and imagining the setting in the days of ancient Rome, I can't help but think that Paul was considering his surroundings as he, again, he writes not only these words, but, but he writes his own epitaph in verses 6 and 7. Which is an amazing thing to consider doing, right? What would you write if you were writing your own epitaph? He says there, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now I know he's alluded earlier in the letter to these images of the athlete and the soldier, but but I had this, this keen sense as I was standing in that prison cell and, and kind of aware of my surroundings that perhaps Paul was thinking of what was immediately around him when he writes this epitaph. That he was thinking of the temples to Caesar and Vesta that stood just outside of his cell walls. These temples where drink offerings would have been regularly made by these pagans who were coming to, to worship a false God, a God who doesn't exist. And, and Paul, considering what's happening right outside his walls, is, is thinking of his own life and his own ministry, and he's thinking, I've offered it all to the true God. I've given it all to Him. I've given my life and my ministry to King Jesus. And it's all over now. I've been poured out. And maybe his thoughts ran down to the Colosseum. The Colosseum is, is just at the other end of the Forum. And it's the place where, of course, gladiators battled valiantly. And maybe it's at that in his mind that he's thinking about his own resolve to keep the faith in the face of fierce opposition saying, I fought the good fight. 
And maybe he was mindful that the Circus Maximus was just behind him. The Circus Maximus being this incredibly large stadium where the chariot races would have been held in front of some 200,000 roaring spectators. I I would wonder that if he was in prison while these races were going on, if he could hear the roar of the crowds, a crowd that size and that close of proximity would have been a pretty impressive sound. And Paul writes, I finished the race. Paul's work is finished. But King Jesus' work continues on. And it continues on to every generation. And so this charge here is given to Timothy. It's given to us. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Keep pointing to Jesus. You know, as I walked around the forum 12 days ago, there's two thoughts that occurred to me. Um, The first was that this ancient city, this seat of the ancient empire, the Roman Empire, was incredibly impressive. As you see these columns and these foundations, you, you, you can begin to construct in your mind and imagine what it would have looked like in its day. And, and you're, you're, you're keenly aware of this, that, that I don't think the world has ever seen anything like it. Before or since. And I've been to Washington, D.C., sort of the, the seat of the, the, the greatest world superpower that the modern world knows and has known. And i got to tell you, Washington, as impressive as it is, doesn't compare to this. It's amazing. Especially when you consider it was built over two millennia ago with the technology and the construction methods available at that time. It's just jaw-dropping. So that overwhelms you. You're you're walking around and you think, this was impressive. If, If you're walking into this place and you're afraid, as you probably should be, of the empire, this is a place that would solidify that fear in your heart. But as that thought washes over you, another more immediate one occurs. It's gone. It's gone. The great system of the world, perhaps the the greatest symbol ever of world power, now lies in ruins. And it's been that way for over 1,500 years. So here's the charge. Be patient. The systems of the world can seem so overbearing. They can, right? They can seem so overbearing. The pressures to conform and to bow the knee to the unrighteous judges around us can feel so overwhelming. Those judges who are constantly telling you, follow this system. This is your security. This is your peace. Go this way. It's treasonous to do otherwise. That can feel so overwhelming. But we have to remember this. These judges do not have the final say. 
There's only one kingdom that lasts forever. And we read about it in the Scriptures, and it belongs to Jesus, the righteous judge. The One whom we serve. So church, let us carry on. Carry the torch and preach the Word. Amen? Father, we thank You for this incredible text. I thank You for the opportunity that I had to go and see this place. And the way that helped me to understand what what Paul might have been saying and ultimately what Your Holy Spirit was saying to us through Him. Thank You that King Jesus is on the throne. Thank You that our hope is in Him. Help us to trust in Him. Help us not to fear the systems of this world that tell us constantly to conform and to look the other way. To find our identity and our security and our peace in false things. Because Lord, remind us that just as those ruins lie there today and have for 1,500 years in Rome, so too will all the systems that are opposed to King Jesus. Nothing lasts but His kingdom. So gird us up in that knowledge. Give us hope. Give us strength. Give us endurance. Give us boldness. Give us faith to look outside our window and no matter what we see, to say, Jesus is on the throne. Thank You for this important and incredible grace. Thank You for our salvation through Your Son. We pray that in His name. Amen.